Welcome, welcome and good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm delighted to present to you our speaker today, uh, Professor David Tal, who is, among other things, the OCRL Chair in Modern Israel Studies at the University of Sussex. Previously, he was the Kahanov Chair in, the Israel, uh, in Israel Studies at the University of Calgary, and he has written extensively on Israel's security and diplomatic history. Among the many works he published, uh, I'll note just a few, um, the American Nuclear Disarmament Dilemma, published by Syracuse University Press in uh, 2008, and War in Palestine, 1948, Strategy and Diplomacy, published by Routledge in 2003. The title of his talk today, The Making of an Ally of Alliance, The Making and History of U.S.-Israeli Relationship, is also the title of his forthcoming book with Cambridge University Press. Professor Tal, thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Yaakov, for having me. Um, as Yaakov said, I'm working now on a book uh, which will uh, discuss the origin, development, the history of the American-Israeli relationship. It's about from Plato to NATO. That is, is going to cover really the range of uh, uh, relationship from the uh, mid-19th century uh, up to, well, it's very difficult to say, but up to quite a present. In this talk today, uh, I would like to introduce to you what I think are the core ideas, the core concepts that are in the base of the Israel-American relationship and which I think are what I call constants in this relationship. That is, these core ideas, as far as I understand it, these core ideas are what drives, have driven in the past, and still, I think, uh, drives the American-Israeli special relationship. It was uh, President John F. Kennedy who uh, told uh, Golda Meir in uh, December 1962 that, uh, where is that? The United States has a special relationship with Israel in the Middle East really comparable only to that which it has with Britain. And historians are arguing over the question uh, when the special relationship had begun, what is the nature of this special relationship. And uh, I will argue that this relationship had started very, very early uh, between uh, the Zionist movement and the United States and uh, they are, as I said, they had something which is constant and which we can see through all the years going on. And these principles, which I'm going to introduce to you today, began, at least politically, with uh, President uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was the first American president to deal politically with the Zionist movement. That happened when the British government asked for his endorsement of the Balfour Declaration. After a lengthy process in which American Jewish Zionists were also involved, most known among them President Wilson's friend, Justice Louis Brandeis, President Wilson granted his support to the declaration. The reason for his uh, decision were a mixture of religion and idealism. Woodrow Wilson grew up in a religious family. He was a keen and devoted reader of the Bible, and his religious devotion led him to articulate deep Christian sentiment favoring the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. 
1912, he likened the Jewish longing to their homeland to the spiritual feeling that motivated European immigrants to come to unknown America. With that, Wilson tied himself to a tradition that went back to the 17th century and to the Puritans that left mainly England and came to the New World. The rhetoric the Puritans used was biblical. They referred to themselves as the chosen people, singled out by God to an example for all nations, just like the biblical Israel. However, when they claimed that they were new Israel, the Puritans and those who followed them did not mean that the Jews ended up their role in history, a common thought among Catholic Christians and also among some Protestant denominations. When they likened themselves to ancient Israel, the Puritans and their successors thought that the Jews should go back to their ancient homeland. In fact, Protestant eschatology provided the basis for the appearance of the Gentile Zionists, who preceded Theodor Herzl in their call for the reestablishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. From the very first settlers, explains historian Hilton Obersinger, belief in Jewish restoration was endemic to American culture. The call was and still is based on two major undercurrents existing among the evangelical Protestant Americans, the dispensational premillennialism and the inerrancy of the Bible. <coughs> According to the dispens dispensational premillennialism, what you see here are seven dispensations, and we are now at the seventh according to the dispensational premillennialists, the time when God would engage the Jewish exiles and would bring them back to their homeland in Palestine was near. The Jewish return would usher an eschatological process that would lead to the return of Jesus Christ and his, his thousand-year reign. Christian salvation became dependent on the fate of the Jewish people and their return to the land God promised to them. The other religious group is the fundamentalists, who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. For them, God's promise to Abraham, to your descendants I will give this land, is not just a religious text, but actual political decree and historical truth that should be implemented as written. In 1985, about 40% of the Americans believed in the Bible's inerrancy, and the poll made in 1996 revealed that 46% of the Americans believed that God promised the land to the Jews. Believing that, and believing that God's promise to Abraham was an actual political decree, no, no wonder that Americans, people, and presidents could understand the Jewish claim to the territory they occupied by force, even if politically they think that such occupation and hold are problematic. One vehicle through which many American people had learned about God's promise to Abraham was the Sunday schools. In 1998, there were 164 Christian denominations listed in the National Council of Churches of Christ yearbook and more than 73 million members. In a survey conducted in, the six, in 16 of these with more than 2 million members, it was found out that their Sunday school contained stories about Abraham, Joshua, or both of them. And the lesson to be drawn for those stories is that Israel was the land promised by God to Israel, to the Israelites. President Nixon tells in his memory that years of training at home and church 
had their effect on my thinking. And you can see the rest on the board. This tendency were manifested in the theopolitical rhetoric presidents and officials used to describe their attitude towards Zionism. Expressing his pride in the role he played in the publication of the Balfour Declaration, Wilson said in wonder, to think that I, the son of a man, would be able to help to restore the Holy Land to its people. Four centuries later, in November 1953, President Harry Truman was invited to the Jewish Theological Seminar in New York to meet a group of Jewish dignitaries. His old friend, Eddie Jacobson, introduced him to the, theologians, to the theologians. This is the man who helped to create the state of Israel, said Jacobson. And Truman retorted, what do you mean, help to create? I am Cyrus. I am Cyrus. President Jimmy Carter who, at a certain, Carter, who at a certain point became critic of Israel, wrote in his memories, I consider this homeland of the Jews, for the Jews, to be incompatible with the teaching of the Bible, hence ordained by God. It might be worth mentioning here that throughout the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, most of the evangelical Christians believed that the return of the Jews to their land should be God's work, a way of thinking identical to that of Orthodox Jews. Only few believed that the Christian church should actively assist the Jews to gather back in the land of Israel. However, following the establishment of the State of Israel in May 1948, and even more so, in the wake of Israel's territorial expansion following the June 1967 war, more and more evangelical Christians turned to believe that indeed the prophecies com were coming true and they shifted their spiritual belief in the return of the Jews. Sorry. We don't want to <laughs> start now, right? Yes, just remind me later. <laughs> yeah. So the prophecies were coming true and they shifted their spiritual belief in the return of the Jews to their homeland into active political creed. Wilson's support for the Jewish homeland derived also from his ideas about self-determination and the power of democracy. Those ideas were not disconnected from his religious education, combined with the political events unfolded in the wake of the First World War. Drawing from the Calvinist doctrine of equal opportunities, which was in the heart of the American egalitarianism, Wilson believed that essentially, all men were capable of self-government, either in actual or in potential. His church, the self-ruled Presbyterian Church, provided him with an apparent evidence of that ability. In his politics, or theopolitics, Wilson represented and helped to advance the cause of liberalism and republicanism, which led to the creation of foreign policy that emphasized individual rights and liberties with democracy embodying these rights. This is evident from the following statement President Wilson made. I believe God presided over the inception of this nation, that we are chosen and prominently chosen to show the way to the nations of the world how they should walk in the path of liberty. The Zionists used that rhetoric in their diplomatic campaigns. They offered to build I agree. 
Um, they offered to build a national home for the Jews in Palestine and to substitute the tyrannical Ottoman rule with a liberal democracy. Messages that fit well into Wilson's new diplomacy, as well as his vision regarding the right of self-determination for national groups and the kind of political regime and constitutions they should build for themselves. Truman's advisors repeated this theme about three decades later during an argument that took place in the White House between George Marshall and President Truman political advisor Clifford Clark. Clark argued that a democratic Jewish state would be a stabilizing element in the Middle East. In an area as unstable as the Middle East, where there is now, not now, and never has been any tradition of democratic government, it is important for the long-range security of our country, and indeed the world, that a nation committed to the democratic system be established there. Truman preferred his advisor's position over Marshall's, and the argument that Israel was, and probably is, the only democracy in an undemocratic region justified American support of Israel in the eyes of presidents since then. American presidents justify their support of Israel also because it is a legitimate member of the international community, whose establishment was sanctioned first by the League of Nations and then reiterated by the United Nations November 1947 partition resolution. When he debated whether to grant recognition to the state declared on May 15, 1948, Truman considered this as a promise that should be kept just as all promises made by responsible civilized governments should be kept, quote unquote. The legitimacy of Israel and its right to secure existence were fundamental themes that American officials from president down the ladder reiterated throughout the years. Jewish history was another argument justifying the American strong attachment to Israel. During the 19th century, mainline American Protestants felt guilty for Christianity's historical treatment of the Jews and the unspeakable cruelties they had suffered at the hands of European Christians for hundreds of years. Carl V. H. Voss, head of the American Christian Palestine Committee, stated in January 1950 that Jewish homelessness and anti-Semitism are Christian-created and therefore are Christian responsibility. President Eisenhower, who is considered as a less friendly president to Israel, wrote in his diary in early 1956, Israel has a very strong position in the heart and emotions of the Western world because of the tragic suffering of the Jews throughout 2,500 years of history. The Holocaust only strengthened this sentiment. This was a sensitive issue mainly among mainline Protestants because of the intellectual leadership the German Protestant Church provided to the American Protestant Church. The passive support of the German Protestant Church and its followers of the Nazi rule deeply shocked American Protestants. In 1942, in the middle of the Second World War, a group of Protestants established the Christian Council on Palestine with Reinhold Niebuhr as one of its members. The group's purpose was to arouse Christian concern and action in light of Hitler's persecution of the Jews and to draw attention to Palestine as the only available refuge for the Jews. 
The group was involved also in the reactivation of the American Palestine Committee, a non-Jew organization. President Truman was, of course, horrified by the Holocaust, and President Jimmy Carter stated that memories of the Holocaust are still alive. Ronald Reagan was just as much committed. The Holocaust, I believe, left America with the moral responsibility to ensure that what, what happened to the Jews under Hitler never happens again. Israeli leaders, on their part, did not hesitate using the Holocaust as a reminder and the reason for the United States to support Israel. David Ben-Gurion would reiterate this theme time and again in his contacts with various American presidents. On one occasion, in a letter he sent to President John F. Kennedy in June 1962, he justified Israel's request for arms in the following argument. We are confronted with a unique security problem. What was done to six million of our brethren 20 years ago could be done to the two million Jews of Israel. A direct line leads from this message to Benjamin Netanyahu's insistence that Israel was still facing a threat of second Holocaust, this time from Iran, fighting against the treaty negotiated with Iran over its nuclear program, Netanyahu stated, just as the Nazis sought to crush civilization, so Iran seeks to dominate the region with the declared intention of destroying the Jewish state. These arguments did find a cold in, an Amer in the American hearts. Religion, values, and history seem to put the United States on a predetermined course in its attitude toward Israel. But can we say the same thing about Israel's association with the United States? Was it only natural for Israel to seek a special relationship with the United States, or was it a matter of convenience and expediency, with Israel wishing to rely on the strongest power in the world? The truth of the matter is that unlike the nature of US foreign policy, the Zionist and Israel's foreign policy was and still is much more pragmatic and realistic than ideological. From the very first days of its existence, the Zionist leaders attributed high importance to the support of a great power in the Zionist project. Herzl tried and failed to recruit the Ottoman Empire and later Wilhelm II, the German Kaiser, to the Zionist cause. The Zionists were more successful in their attempts to recruit Britain. One major result, of course, was the Balfour Declaration. And later, it was given mandate over Palestine. The British practically acted to carry out the obligation they made in the Balfour Declaration. However, the cha British chapter in the history of Zionism movement ended in May 1939, when the British government published a white paper that set very strict limits on the immigration of Jews to Palestine and limited significantly the ability of the Jews in Palestine to purchase lands, mainly from Arabs. The Zionist movement sought now a new ally, and the natural alternative was the United States. However, the Zionists and the State of Israel did not appreciate the links with the United States because of America's moral standing and values. It was the Jewish community and the way American political institutions could be used to advance Zionist and Israeli interests that led the Zionists 
to seek the support of the United States. David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish community in Palestine during the years of the mandate, and Israel's first prime minister, was well familiar with the United States. He visited the United States for the first time in May 1915, during which he met Paula Monbaz, who became his wife. The first visit was followed by many others. During his visits, Ben-Gurion used to spend a lot of time at the New York Public Library, reading extensively about the history of the United States, its political system, and in particular, how policy was shaped in that most developed and democratic of nations, quote-unquote. Through his observations and study, Ben-Gurion came to appreciate both the American people and the American institutions. He saw a resemblance between the Zionists and the American pioneers and admired what those pioneers had achieved. However, for Ben-Gurion, the more significant lesson and experience was the American political system, which gave power to public opinion. Ben-Gurion was especially impressed by the way the American-Irish had managed during the 1920s to become a pressure group that mobilized American public opinion and gained American support for an independent Irish state. The Jews should do the same, he thought, for Israel. The free speech, free thought, free press, and free communication, so abundant in the United States, argued Ben-Gurion, made it the most viable place for Zionists to mobilize the masses, Jews as well as non-Jews, toward the Israeli cause. Ben-Gurion's attitude toward the United States should be viewed within the broader context of his view of the world and its relations with Israel. Ben-Gurion believed that the Jewish people were unique in the sense that they were alone in the world, a people who dwell alone. Throughout the history of the Jewish, throughout history, the Jewish nation was singular in its language, religion, culture, and standing in the world. Ben-Gurion believed that the world's attitude toward Israel tilted from open hostility to compliance and acceptance of Israel's existence. On the one side stood the Arab countries who wanted to see Israel destroyed, and on the other side stood the United States, who acknowledged the right of Israel to exist, but did not really care whether it would continue to exist or not. Thus, in October 1941, Ben-Gurion declared that he put no faith in princes, neither in Churchill nor in Roosevelt. In this world, argued Ben-Gurion, where the Jews dwelt alone, only world Jewry were Israel's true allies. In it, Ben-Gurion saw the Jewish community in the United States as the hinterland of Israel and one of its most profound assets. In July 1955, he stated, the Jewish community in the United States is Israel's only and true allies. The American political system allowed the American Jews to become a strong power that could help Israel in time of need. The Jews, argued Ben-Gurion, should exercise that power whenever Israel was in need of help. In an address he delivered in August 1951 to an American Zionist organization, he made that point. The Zionists who live in free and democratic countries can and should always assist Israel. 
There were about 5 million Jews in the United States in 1948, small percentage within the total of the American population. But their cohesiveness and organization made them political power to be reckoned with. The Jews, as a collective, did and do have political power beyond their numbers in society. During the 1930s and 1940s, during the 1930s and 1940s, out of about 5 uh, million American Jews, only 100,000 to 150,000 were Zionists. They were, the rest were non or anti-Zionist, which are not the same category, non-Zionist and anti-Zionist. <laughs> During those years, the Jewish community as a whole became the richest community among Jews in the world and the richest ethnical community in the United States. They had power and access to the corridors of power and they used that power and that access. Prominent Jews like Judge Louis Brandeis, they are all here above, and now you can play the game of who is who. <laughs> Prominent Jews like Judge Louis Brandeis, Felix Frankfurter, Stefan S. Weiss, David Niles, Abraham Feinberg, and Max Fischer, to mention only few, had close ties with presidents. Feinberg was an advisor on Israeli affairs to Truman, Kennedy, and Johnson. Fischer worked for 40 years with American presidents on Jewish and American issues. His strongest connection was with President Nixon. Israeli diplomats delivered through the American Jews messages regarding issues that matter to Israel and asked the Jews to exert pressure on the members of the administration either directly or through their congressional representatives where necessary. More than that, as Jeremy Suri has shown in his study on Henry Kissinger, American Jews climbed along the ladder within the government, holding high-ranked positions in the State Department and the White House. They, they worked, of course, for the American government and were no less loyal to the United States than their non-Jew peers. But they found it easier to discuss and to talk with the Israelis, who in turn found it easier to deal with them. Thus, Ben-Gurion expectations for the American Jews were fully met. The American Jews, Zionists and non-Zionists, led campaigns aiming to advance the Zionist coast from Brandeis' involvement in convincing Wilson to support the Balfour Declaration, the Zionist pressure on congressmen to endorse pro-Zionist resolution in the 1920s up to the 1940s, up to the active participation of Jews within the administration and out of it in the struggle that led eventually to the establishment of the State of Israel. Philip Klutznik, one of the leaders of the Jewish community in the United States, outlined in July 1979 the logic of the American Jew actions. As an American Jew, I have a dual obligation, but not double loyalty. I have an obligation to my country in any way I can. I have an obligation to my people to the people to my people from which I stem. There is one example from October 1973 
While the October war was raging, the demonstrates the American commitment to Israel, which also includes in it an American Jewish commitment to Israel. During the Yom Kippur War, the Israeli ambassador Simcha Dinitz negotiated with Henry Kissinger the delivery of tanks and plans to Israel. Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon told the Israelis at an early stage of the fighting that the United States would provide Israel with all the weapons it would lose during the war, but only after the end of the war. As the president, under Kissinger's advice, did not want the United States to look like it was siding too blandly with Israel in its war with Egypt. Simcha Dinitz, the Israeli ambassador to the United States at the time, urged with argue with Kissinger over the, play, the pace of the deliveries. And this is how Dinitz reported one of the conversation with Kissinger ended. Hmm? I didn't put it here. No, it's not here. Oh. Sorry, because I had the original document in its Hebrew, so I'll spare that with you. In any case, Kissinger, Dinitz reported back to Tel Aviv saying, in a choking voice, Kissinger said, as long as I'm here, I will not abandon Israel. Was Kissinger at that time Secretary of State and National Security Advisor speaking as an American or as a Jew? It seemed proper to assume that it was both, just as David Niles was acting both as a Jew and American in his advocacy of Jewish case when he talked with Truman. Kissinger, who was branded at a certain moment as the husband of the Shikze, was speaking as American and a Jew. And more than one American president made such pledge to the Israeli prime minister. But it was never said in such sentimental matter, a manner, and certainly not in a choking voice. That is, Kissinger would not say or do anything that any other member of the administration would have done. However, there was an attachment, a connection, that made the exchange and communication easier to have between Israelis and Americans, such as Kissinger. The case, the conversation between Kissinger and Dinitz was another demonstration to the way Israeli and American high-ranking officials talked with each other with no hindrances. They would listen to each other, allowing to the other to convince them. Policy on matters pertinent to Israel had been made not in Washington alone. It was a mutual process where the voices and interests of both countries were considered and measured. Religion, ideals, and history were the three pillars and bedrock upon which interests were weighted and dialogue would flourish. The interests of each country not always aligned but they were superseded by the constants, or at least became a matter of discussions and negotiations, which Israel and the United States could have in such intimate manner. Does it all mean that the American-Israeli relationship will continue to remain special in the future? Probably. One thing I can promise you. If that won't happen, I will know how to explain that too. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>